Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm the first one to complain about Facebook. If it weren't for my job, I'd probably spend less time on it. But it was a July 6th post on Facebook by Connecticut Fish and Wildlife that got my attention and the attention of so many others about a mysterious disease affecting birds in the eastern United States. It read reports of sick and dying birds with vision problems, eye swelling, and neurological symptoms reported in our state and others like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. This same information was shared by other reputable organizations in our state, so we wanted to take time today where we live and talk with scientists about what is and isn't known about this disease affecting birds. And take your questions too. Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll hear from Connecticut's state ornithologist, too. First, with us on Zoom is Brian Hess. He's a wildlife biologist at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, also known as DEEP. Brian, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So talk us through when wildlife enthusiasts and scientists first noticed that some songbirds on the eastern part of our country weren't doing very well. Sure. Uh, this issue really hit our radar uh, the week preceding that, you know, preceding that Facebook post. So uh, the issue sort of came about because we were noticing uh, other organizations putting out these advisories about bird feeders and things like that. Uh, so what we did was sort of go back and talk to some of the state agencies and some of the diagnostic labs that are working on uh, figuring out what's going on. And it turns out that this problem sort of began sometime in you know May, mid-May maybe, and, and really started to, to escalate in uh, early to mid-June. Uh, and this is especially across that mid-Atlantic region, sort of Maryland, Virginia, um, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio. So that mid-Atlantic, eastern, midwest region. So uh, it goes back not far, uh, and we're have, and we're over here trying to figure out uh, what's going on and, and use some of the work that's already been done to play catch up a little bit. So describe the symptoms of this illness. What was observed and what have we been seeing in Connecticut? Sure. Uh, so the the issue, the symptoms that have been noticed are, um, par they are sort of parallel some existing bird diseases, but they're in a kind of a unique combination. So uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of these cases are, are having uh, eye issues. So uh, swelling of eyes, uh, sort of crusty discharge around the eyes, uh, cloudy eyes, uh, and then also like neurological symptoms showing that there's some sort of uh, brain issue that's not working correctly. So 
head bobbing, uh, inter basically inappropriate vocalizations, not being able to stand up, uh, that sort of thing. So throwing those things together, um, those don't really match uh, diseases that uh, disease profile that we currently know about. Uh, so I think that that caught folks' attention and and uh, and prompted some of this investigation and some of some of these warnings. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, these symptoms, there's other diseases and infections that impact birds. And so can you talk through uh, why this looks different? Sure. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that was, that, that a lot of um, organizations did when they first noticed this was start collecting samples and submitting them to places like the uh, National Wildlife Health Center, the uh, UConn, um, or the University of Pennsylvania Wildlife Futures Program, the Southeastern Cooperative Wildlife Disease uh, Study at U University of Georgia. Um, and what those folks are, are doing is starting to eliminate possibilities, things like West Nile virus, avian influenza, Newcastle disease, herpes viruses, pox viruses, um, things like that. Um, so some of those can cause, you know, some of those neurological symptoms. Uh, in addition, there's a disease that's called by, caused by a mycoplasma bacteria called Finch eye disease that causes some of that crustiness, but uh, it doesn't really, it's not really associated with that, um, those neurological symptoms as well. Um, and so it, it does kind of present a unique combination. And it also it's been seen most specifically in juveniles of birds, like fledglings, new, newly fledged birds, um, and in species that aren't that weren't really heavily impacted by those suites of diseases in the past. You're hearing Brian Hess again, wildlife biologist at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, also known as DEEP, as we talk about this mysterious illness impacting birds, songbirds along the eastern part of our state. What have you noticed where you live? You can join us if you have a question about what you should be looking for uh, as you observe birds around uh, your neighborhood. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I just saw a robin walk by my window, Brian. And so robins and what other birds are have been affected by this so far? Right. So uh, in, in our discussions with uh, with other affected states, it seems there's four species that are sort of uh, their primary, that they're getting the most numbers of observations about, those being uh, European starlings, common grackles, American robins, and blue jays. Uh, so those kind of seem to be the, the heavy hitters, but there are other birds that have been reported uh, things like cardinals, northern flickers, um, and some some sparrows and things like that too. So it's it's we're we're sort of really still getting a handle on what what species have uh, are being affected by this. Deep uh, was able to share some photographs with us of birds that have been afflicted by this illness. We'll tweet out a link uh, at where we live. If you'd like to see a picture, again, you mentioned uh, the crusty eyes, the neurological issues. Um, but when we talk about the fact that we're in Connecticut, obviously there's been a lot of uh, interest in this. So many people in our state appreciate nature, Brian. So are you hearing from residents with confirmed cases of this illness? Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that Facebook page up at the top and uh, 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 or that Facebook post. Um, and I was paying pretty close attention to the comments and, uh, and, and concerns voiced on that Facebook post as well. So you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of attention to it. And, and I think rightfully so. Um, we've been getting reports of dead birds. And I think this is something that 
um, you know, maybe people don't realize is that a lot of times around this time of year, you know, there is a fair amount of bird mortality, especially for juvenile birds. It's, it's you know, it's a tough life out there. Um, so I, I think that there are some folks that are, are, are seeing and noticing that there are dead birds out there for, um, you know, for, for the first time. That said, uh, there have been some folks that have called in and said, you know, we have this, this, um, um, you know, this, uh, this songbird that's got uh, certain eye issues. Uh, what we're working on is uh, figuring out how to, uh, we're um, taking those calls, uh, having, you know, a conversation with folks, uh, and then being able to respond to them and, you know, let and, you know, let them know what to do. Uh, should they discard it? Should they um, throw it, you know, figure out a way to collect it and put it in a freezer? Um, so that's what we're working on right now. Uh, we don't have any confirmed cases at this point, uh, but we do have we we have heard of some uh, some you know some reports from the public that do seem to uh, at least in part fit some of the patterns. And so, if a listener again sees uh, an ill bird or a dead bird, uh, talk through how they should handle that particular bird, and what's the number to call or way to contact you and your colleagues, Brian. Sure. Yeah. So the best uh, the best advice I can say is if the bird is still living, um, uh, I would say contact a wildlife rehabilitator. We have an amazing network of uh, wildlife rehabilitators across the state. Uh, they're uh, wonderful people who do this out of you know largely out of the goodness of their hearts. They're uh, uh, a really great group of uh, folks who are out there trying to uh, to help address. Uh, injured and sick uh, wild animals. Uh, so if you go to, you know, your search engine and type in uh, DEEP and wildlife rehabilitators, you'll get a list of, um, uh, of certified wildlife rehabilitators in Connecticut sorted by um, how, uh, sorted by what groups of animals they, uh, they, they deal with. So if you see a bird that's still living, uh, especially if it's one that looks like you can you know, get a hold of it, uh, or that someone could come and, and you know catch with a net with with, uh, um, with ease. Uh, give a give a wildlife rehabilitator a call. They'll be able to to direct you and give you some good advice about what what next steps to take. We're working directly with that group of wildlife rehabilitators to provide them with you know sampling tools so that they can you know take swabs. And we're working with the uh, Connecticut. Uh, veterinary medical diagnostic center or my diagnostic lab uh, at UConn to sort of collect and uh, and have those analyzed. So if you have a live bird, wildlife rehabilitator is the way to go. If you see a dead bird, um, we do have a reporting form. So if you go to that same search engine and type DEEP, you know, bird mortality, you'll get uh, the first hit usually is a our, uh, we call it the dead bird database, but it's basically um, a database that was constructed you know, to track mortality events in dead birds. So it'll ask you things like, where where are you, like your location um, on a map, uh, how many birds you've seen, what species of birds you've seen, um, uh, that sort of thing. And it'll prompt you there. Uh, on that page also is our, our phone number, uh, our contact info for the wildlife division. So if you do have a particularly concerning case where you've got, you know, crusty eyes, neurological symptoms, stuff like that, uh, give us a call for sure. 
Again, you're hearing Brian Hess, wildlife biologist at the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. We'll also look up those links and post them to our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. So our listeners are able to find them um, as well. Uh, Brian, uh, I wanted to get the perspective our, of our Connecticut state ornithologist about this, again, illness and the fact that scientists are still uh, d- researching it and trying to figure out what's causing it and the impact. Uh, Margaret Rubega joins us on the phone. She's also Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Margaret, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. So tell us your thoughts uh, when uh, you heard about this mysterious illness and your thoughts on some of the theories, because again, scientists are still uh, looking into this. Yeah, I have to say that um, I don't don't have many thoughts on the theories because I'd say that there are not strong theories. And mostly what I mean by that is that the folks who Brian mentioned at these various uh, wildlife disease labs um, have looked at all the sort of low-hanging fruit, the suspects that, um, you know, might explain what is going on. Um, so that's the big mystery. It's not any of the uh, of the avian diseases we already know about as being, you know, present in the United States and, and in some cases pretty common. Um, and, and so folks are especially interested in it, of course, because there, there is no answer. Someone could say, oh, it's conjunctivitis or, oh, it's, you know, a particular kind of, say, West Nile virus, um, then, uh, then we would know exactly what to do. Uh, when I mentioned theories, uh, one thing that um, has been um, circulated, and this is why I wanted to bring this up with you, Margaret, is uh, questions about with the cicada um, coming out, and is there any correlation uh, with this particular uh, illness among birds in the mid-Atlantic? What can you tell us? Um, well, I have to say that so far as I can see, there's no evidence that cicadas have anything to do with this. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is that um, the cicadas emerge every 17 years. Um, the last 17-year emergence did not have one of these events. <laughs> so that tends to suggest that uh, the cicadas are not likely to be the problem. And in addition to that, uh, cicadas, you know, as something that the birds might be eating and getting some kind of a disease from, is really not the sort of thing you would expect um, many of these birds to be feeding to their offspring. Their kids need high-protein, easy-to-swallow food. Um, It's mostly young birds who are turning up with this problem. Um, And so I I would say that the evidence simply isn't there for the idea that cicadas have anything to do with it. It's just a coincidence that the cicada emergence is happening in the same season. Uh, Brian, we, we talked about the importance of citizen science, uh, what uh, people are observing, but also their role in helping, uh, as scientists are still learning about this, that it doesn't keep spreading among songbirds. And so there's a feedback on people who still have feeders out at this time of year, and even bird baths. What can you tell them? Sure. Um, one of the things that we're advising as a sort of precautionary measure since we don't know what is causing that, what the causative agent of this disease is, is figuring out ways to keep birds from congregating together and coming into contact with each other and spreading that disease amongst each other. We already know that bird feeders, uh, if they're not properly cleaned you know, on a regular basis, can you know contribute to the 
spread of diseases like you know trichomoniasis and avian pox and aspergillosis and things like that. We, we, we know that and one of the things that we're advising folks to do is to take down those feeders, to eliminate the sources of uh, places where birds would come into contact with each other. Um, so a lot of the concern that, that folks have been raising are, uh, you know, are the birds going to be okay without all of that supplemental food that we're putting out there? I mean, the answer is, you know, it's, yes, uh, we really do feed birds for our benefit and not for the benefit of the birds. We like, you know, we, we feed them because we like to watch them. Uh, the birds are doing okay. And this, in this time of year in particular, there's lots of insects out there. There's lots of uh, fruits and berries um, and uh, seeds and all sorts of other sources of food from uh, all kinds of places across the landscape right now. We got a, a question from a listener on Twitter who wants to know, is sanitizing feeders daily an option to stop the spread for those of us who can't get ourselves to stop feeding their feathered friends? How would you advise that person, Brian? Well, I, I think I would advise that, that sanitizing feeders is, certainly is a good thing to do. It's a good practice to be in. Um, but really what we're looking to do is to eliminate the congregation of birds. So even if you clean your feeders and refill them daily, you're still getting that big group of birds together where they're coming into contact with each other. We don't know if this is an infectious agent or not. Uh, so one of the things that we're trying to do is eliminate or minimize those places where, you know, we're causing big groups of birds to grab together. And maybe we should underline what you also shared at this time of year. There's plenty of food out there for birds. Uh, and maybe another reminder that the that Deep already recommends people do not have feeders up because of another animal that we are seeing more and more of, and that's bears. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, and in addition to that, there's, you know, there's uh those feeders can attract bears and other kinds of things this time of year. So yeah, feeding, especially if you're in a part of the state that has a lot of bears, uh, feeding feeding this time of year has its, uh, certainly has other problems associated with it as well. Uh, Margaret Rubega, I wanted to go back to you again. She's joining us on the phone, our state ornithologist. Uh, Brian had mentioned earlier that, you know, especially this time of year, there are a lot of bird deaths. And so other ways that uh, we can think about uh, to minimize that, especially, you know, leaving, letting our cats run outdoors and, and, and other behaviors that while well, we're impacting uh, these birds. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Lucy. I mean, to put this in perspective, um, it's important to take these sorts of um, wildlife disease events seriously and to act in, uh, you know, um, through an abundance of caution in a conservative way. But the scale of this so far in terms of confirmed cases of birds actually dying from whatever this is are quite quite small compared to a lot of things that we do day in, day out that have, uh, you know, a contribution to mortality to birds dying. So at this point, we're talking on the scale probably of confirmed cases that are that are dead across all these states in the in the low thousands, maybe a total of 5,000 of them altogether. Um, and cats roaming outdoors, these are household cats roaming outdoors, kill at least a billion birds a year. That's a billion with a B. So wow. to put that Put that in context, that is sort of um, similar to as if the, the number of people that you'd find in your average high school in Connecticut dying over the course of a couple of months, as opposed to everyone in China 
dying over the course of a couple of months. It, the, the scale is small, and you can so you can have a big impact by keeping cats indoors because um, they do take an enormous number of birds every year, and every cat contributes to that problem. So keeping your own cat indoors um, can really lower the pressure on the birds in your immediate area. Mm. Uh, Brian, before we let you go uh, here again, he's a wildlife biologist with DEEP. Uh, because so many people enjoy seeing birds uh, where they live, uh, maybe a, another reminder that uh, planting uh, native plants and, and other uh, flowers uh, can help attract these birds just as well as uh, some of that expensive seed they're buying. Absolutely. There's a uh... There are lots of uh, really great um, and cool native plants that are out there that produce uh, beautiful flowers uh, throughout the, grow- the growing season um, and also, you know, pr- provide some um, uh, healthy fruit for the birds um, and are, are, are just a, a real great part of the landscape. So, uh, you know, if you have any, any questions about that, you know, a good uh, local nursery, a, a place, um, some of our conservation organizations use native plant sales as fundraisers. Uh, but those are a really great option to provide, you know, to provide food, cover, shelter, and, and good wildlife habitat in your own backyard. Well, thank you again, Brian Hess, uh, for joining us from the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Again, we'll share links uh, to how listeners can reach out to DEEP if they see uh, ill or dead birds uh, where they live at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Thank you, Brian, for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks. Now, state ornithologist Margaret Rubega is going to stay with us as we learn about some of the interesting research she's doing this summer. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. That tune may be familiar to you. It's from the game Angry Birds. But here's what Angry Birds really sound like. (laughs) 
Those are turns, very angry turns, recorded by Connecticut State Ornithologist Margaret Rubega, who's with us today on the phone. She's professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Margaret, what were you doing to get those birds so angry? Lucy, I was just walking by. <laughs> I was really not making any trouble. <laughs> However, I was. I was walking by where their nests and their chicks are, and uh, they do their job. Um, They're basically just up there in the air doing the equivalent of what you do when you see a stranger on your lawn. You come out and go, hey, you, (laughs) get off my grass. (laughs) And so that's what they're doing. They're they're just, but they're all doing it at once, so it's especially loud. So tell us exactly where you are and uh, where these uh, turns are that you were uh, prov- uh, provoking by walking by, Margaret. I am on the American Museum of Natural History's Great Gull Island Field Station. It's on an island called Great Gull, um, out in the middle of Long Island Sound. It's about halfway between Plum and Fisher's Island. Um, if folks, you know, sort of know the layout of the sound, it's quite near the race, the entrance to, the, to Long Island Sound. Whole Island is about seven feet. Oh, Margaret, your phone broke up a little there. Uh, if you could just, re- you were talking about uh, where exactly you were uh, on this island. And so this is where terns and other birds are, are right now. How many birds are we talking Oh, we're talking about, how's the sound now, Lucy? Good, good. Great. Uh, we're talking about quite a lot of birds. The island is only 17 acres in total, total extent, and there's close to 20,000 birds in total. Um, it's the largest colony of the endangered roseate tern in the Western Hemisphere, and it's uh, the second largest common tern colony possibly in the world, but they're, they're both, um, you know, large colonies. Uh, so it's sort of the equivalent of a small town mm. in population on 17 acres. And so how endangered um, are any of these species? Well, roseate terns are federally endangered. Um, and so they're, they've, and they've been federally endangered since about 1986 because uh, their populations are small and not growing. And so um, much of what goes on here at Great Gull Island is making sure that habitat the birds can breed on is maintained and, um, and in some cases restored. Um, in 1956, the American Museum of Natural History acquired this island from the U.S. Army, who had had a fort here called Fort Mitchie. And since that time, they have had a long-running project to make sure that uh, habitat for the terns um, is available to them and that they're they're protected so that we continue to have them. You're hearing Margaret Rubega again on the phone with us where we live. She's Connecticut State Ornithologist, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. She's calling us from Great Gull Island. This is in New York waters, but about seven miles off of Connecticut's coast where she's doing a research on shorebirds like these particular terns. Can you describe what they look like for us, Margaret? Oh, sure. They're, they're seabirds. And so um, they, I think to most people, they look a lot like a very small gull, um, like a very small, what people refer to as seagulls. So that means technically incorrect. That's why the, these, uh, this island and the small 
island next to it that has a lighthouse on it are both referred to as the Gull Islands. One is the lighthouse island is Little Gull, and this is Great Gull, um, because the birds nested here historically, and so people were aware of them. Um, but they they're they're quite a bit smaller than a gull. They belong to a, a related but but different group of birds. They have um, relatively long, um, pointed beaks. They're quite graceful birds. They're about the size of a blue jay, I think, um, would be the nearest size reference that most folks would know. Um, but their wings are longer and pointier. Their tails are longer and forked. They're um, white underneath and sort of a pale gray above. And a roseate tern at this time of year has a mostly black beak. And a most beautiful, really fantastic, delicate blush of pink all down its throat um, and on its breast feathers. Now, earlier we talked about human impact on birds. And so I'm wondering when we talk about this area that these terns historically nested, and if you can talk about the human impact on their ability to breed, Margaret. Sure. These birds... Um, our true seabirds, which is to say that they're really kind of only on land because they need some place to sit down <laughs> and and especially some place to put their eggs that can't lay their eggs in, in water. So they're plunge diving seabirds. They catch fish by going headfirst into the water and grabbing a fish. And um, they used to nest um, pretty much anywhere along the shoreline where there was appropriate habitat, sort of sandy beaches cobble beaches, places with low vegetation, um, and they've long since stopped being able to nest on the shoreline itself uh, because of development down to the shoreline, because humans really like to be on beaches, and when the humans are on the beach, they tend to disturb the birds, um, which is very bad for their eggs and their chicks. Um, historically, they were among the birds that um, plume hunters who were shooting birds for their for their prettiest feathers uh, targeted, and so they've had a lot of um, pressure from humans over the last century or so. I understand you and your colleagues are also watching out for predators of these terns. Can you talk about what, some of the activity you're doing, Margaret? Oh, well, mostly what we're doing is um, keeping an eye on the sort of aerial predators who would either take an adult um, turn or might come in and snatch up a chick. Um, that would include gulls. It would include raptors of all kinds, who, of course, are just doing their own business as well. But um, if we are present on the island and somewhat active, in the colony, it's a, it's a balancing act. You don't want to be in the colony so much that you're a bad disturbance. But as long as we're present and going up and down the island on a regular basis, that discourages the predators from landing here and, and taking um, eggs and chicks. I was thinking to uh, another uh, shorebird that we hear about that um, its numbers are problematic, and that is the piping plover, right? And so the idea and that humans need to be careful because if you bother them at all, it, it really does impact their nesting. Yes, it does. And they're, they're an excellent example of a bird who, who has um, similar habitat needs and similar problems. They, they really need a sandy beach uh, to nest on. And of course, that puts them in conflict 
uh, with folks who, who also really like a sandy beach. Um, and so your listeners, you know, in the towns where they live, in the places where they go to recreate, can really help those birds out by paying close attention to the signs that ask them to keep out of certain areas by keeping their dogs on a leash because it sort of seems to you, well, I'm just looking and the dog is just going by, but every time the bird is alarmed because as far as they're concerned, you're a potential predator, they get up, they walk away from their eggs because they're trying to hide from you the location where the nest is. But the eggs that are sitting out in direct sunlight heat up very, very quickly. And we all know what happens to an egg when you apply heat to it. <laughs> you end up with hard-boiled eggs, and those don't turn into chicks. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's, if, if folks want to help these birds out, and they're wonderful animals to, to have you know, in the state, um, just paying attention to the signs, doing what they're asked by the wardens, um, and supporting the organizations in the state that are doing the work to protect the habitat and to protect the birds during the breeding season, like the Connecticut Audubon Society, Piping Plover's Nest, their Milford Point Sanctuary. And so, so folks supporting them really helps those birds out. Do we know if those efforts are helping piping plover? Have we seen uh, numbers growing, Margaret? Piping plovers are are uh, have increased slightly over the years that we've been working on them, but they are not. Again, because we really like beaches too. Um, the limitation on habitat makes it very hard to grow those populations, um, and so if we want to keep that iconic. A very cute bird. Let me just say there is nothing cuter than a piping plover chick. Get yourself a pair of binoculars. <laughs> Stand at the appropriate distance. They're just like cotton balls on, on really long legs. Um, then, you know, leaving some habitat for those birds is a, is a critical, critical piece. Margaret, again, is our state ornithologist. Uh, we always enjoy talking with you, Margaret, and you're a great resource for us and our listeners. We did have a couple of questions, just going back to what we talked about earlier in the show about this mysterious illness, and I'm wondering if you could help answer some of the listener questions. Lisa wondering, um, is there a potential that this illness that some songbirds have been observed having on the eastern part of our state is due to a contaminated food seed source and if the possibility of chemical exposure has been ruled out, what can you tell her? Um, I will say that at this point, um, what we don't know exceeds what we do know <laughs> about exactly what this is. Uh, I know that testing is going on for toxicants, and so far, um, no evidence that toxicants are a problem. Um, and so pesticides or seed contamination. I'm not ruling that out. I'm just saying there's no evidence of that yet. Um, seed sources, it's possible that if a disease organism was present in seeds, that adults could pass it on just through contact. But remember that these are mostly young birds, and young birds don't get fed seeds even by seed-eating um, adult birds. Chicks need a lot of protein to grow. Uh, just like the teenager who's in your kitchen wolfing down all the protein <laughs> in your refrigerator. And so they feed them bugs um, 
and so I, I wouldn't guess that seeds are likely to be a source, but nobody's ruling anything out at this point. And one more for you, Margaret. We just got about a minute. Jane wants to know, what about hummingbird feeders? Uh, do those also need to be brought in while scientists are still trying to figure out what's going on with the songbirds? Well, I think hummingbirds don't congregate at feeders in the way that other birds do. Um, I think that the advice, it's always a good idea to keep your feeders as clean as possible. Um, it's not never a bad idea to clean your feeders. So if you are cleaning your feeders every single day, your hummingbird feeders every single day, which in the heat you should be doing anyway because the the sugar water in there is fermenting and you don't want drunk hummingbirds in your backyard. Um, (laughs) It's not going to hurt the hummingbirds to take them down because there are plenty of flowers and, um, but if you're washing them on a regular basis, on a daily basis, with a 10% bleach solution, um, I, I think that um, we could all stand to get better hygiene practices around our feeders. Um, it, it's sort of easy to not think about it, but it's a little bit like picking out plates for, your, for the guests who come to your house um, that you haven't washed in a year or six months. <laughs> so... If, if nothing else comes out of this, better feeder hygiene might be a, a great outcome from this. Well, Margaret Rubega, thank you again for joining us from Great Gull Island. I think I hear them outside your window. Be careful out there, Margaret. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> again, she's Connecticut State Ornithologist. This is where we live. Coming up, we get an update on the Federal Migratory Bird Treaty Act. How's the Biden administration handling changes to the law by the former administration? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, nearly a month ago, the Surfside Condominium in Miami partially collapsed. On the next Where We Live, what could have been done differently to prevent this tragedy? If you live in a condominium or rent an apartment, we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about building safety? Again, that conversation tomorrow. Now, since we've been talking about birds this hour, we wanted to get an update on the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. A change in interpretation under the Trump administration weakened the government's ability to punish corporations that harm birds. But what's happening now under the Biden administration? For more, joining us on Zoom is Juliet Eilprin. She's Senior National Affairs Correspondent for The Washington Post. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I didn't realize the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is, is more than 100 years old. So how does it protect the bird species? It's a really significant law that, as you mentioned, uh, has been around since 1918. And what it does is it... Uh, subjects both companies or individuals to federal prosecution if they take action that ends up killing migratory birds. And for example, this does not mean, you know, if your cat goes out and kills a bird, the feds are going to go after you. But what it does mean is that particularly if there are large scale actions which result in a significant amount of bird deaths, this is, for example, uh, you're you're drilling for oil on the Great Plains and you set up a massive oil pit and don't take any precautions for birds to get ensnared in them and, and they die. Or, for example, one of the most significant examples is during the 2010 BP oil spill, 
where you had obviously significant uh, bird deaths. Uh, the company in that case paid $100 million to fund wetlands restoration to compensate for the tremendous harm to wildlife as a, as a result of that accident. So what happened under the Trump administration and who was lobbying to change the interpretation of the law, Juliet? There are plenty of companies that have issues with this law and how it's applied, again, particularly developers, whether you're talking about sometimes real estate developers, or as I mentioned, folks in the energy industry, including, frankly, uh, sometimes wind energy, as well as, say, oil and gas, all of them argued that the prosecution was too aggressive and that they should not be responsible for actions that didn't intentionally target birds, but could have resulted in their deaths. And so what you saw is really fairly early on in the Trump administration in December of 2017, the, the top lawyer at the Interior Department, which is known as the solicitor, issued a new legal opinion saying that the way this law had been interpreted for years was wrong and that you should only hold companies and individuals responsible for, you know, if, if there's an intentional injury or, or, or killing of migratory birds. So this was a, a new interpretation, and it actually took them three years to rewrite this regulation so that on January 7th of this year, you know, a couple of weeks before Trump took office, the Fish and Wildlife Service published a final rule which scaled back uh, the interpretation and essentially said, unless you, you know you go out and deliberately target birds, you will not be legally responsible for their injury or death. So now the Biden administration has reversed that, but you just mentioned it took three years under the Trump administration to make this rule change. And so where do stand, things stand now when we think about a reversal and what this means for both companies and for bird species? So initially, after Biden took office, the in the Depart Department of, of Interior and, and Fish and Wildlife first delayed the effective date of this uh, of this rule until March 8th. It, it now is in effect. The Trump rule is in effect. But what the it, what the department did is it it rescinded that controversial legal opinion, and it said that they're going to you know rewrite it and essentially restore the old interpretation. Uh, it took public comment, which closed a little over a month ago on that. And so they are working to change this rule. It won't take three years, but it certainly will take uh, some more months until they can change and and put in standards that would be more stringent. So that's what they're working on doing. For the moment, however, they cannot, for example, bring cases against individuals or firms that are violating the law in the kind of historic interpretation. They have to abide by the Trump rules. So that gives you a sense of how actions that are taken by a previous administration can still apply. So it sounds like there's a legal limbo right now. So if a company accidentally kills birds between now and when this reversal by the Biden administration is finalized, the government can't prosecute them. Right. They have to adhere to the to the current uh, and revised, uh, you know, interpretation of, of the rules. So that's that's where we stand. Although, you know, if particularly if you're if you're doing a long term project, which is, of course, sometimes what happens with many of these energy companies or real estate developers, certainly you can read the writing on the wall and know that 
you, you might be best off taking some precautions because the moment that that new rule is finalized, you're going to be held to a strict. So if the BP oil spill happened tomorrow, there wouldn't be consequences under this rule? Right. It, it, it appears that that would be very difficult uh, to, to pursue. And, and the department, the Interior Department I checked with them said that at this moment, the Fish and Wildlife Service can't enforce the statute, uh, you know, in the context of actions that, that just result in what they call the incidental take of migratory birds, that, that again, that, that birds are killed, but not intentional. So from the company perspective, we know that projects take a long time to complete. And so now that there's this legal limbo, will companies likely follow the traditional interpretations? So they don't want to get pinged later on? It seems likely that they, that again, for those that are involved in long-term planning, they can see that it's, you know, it wouldn't be a, a bright idea to, uh, you know, to, 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 to run any risks that, you know, particularly for operations that are going to be up and running for some time. But, but it is, and one of the other things is that, of course, sometimes out in the field, when a company is working on doing things, or a local official is, you know, for example, deciding whether to build a bridge that could potentially, you know, for example, result in wildlife deaths, that they might confer with agency officials and, and get some guidance that they that they want to take precautions. But, you know, again, particularly as reporters who are covering this, it's, it's you know, hard to monitor those kind of informal consultations. And again, they, they would know that during this period, the January 7th rule is in effect, and that's the law of the land. You're hearing Juliet Eilprin here on Where We Live. She's a senior national affairs correspondent for The Washington Post, updating us on what's happening with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Uh, Julia, I wanted to broaden out and talk a little bit about um, how you and your colleagues have been tracking the environmental rule changes under Biden, um, because so much changed under the Trump administration. What are some other uh, issues that we should be taking note yeah, there are a huge number of issues that, you know, that, again, uh, President Biden and his deputies have targeted. They have, for example, uh, are they're reassessing and in, in many cases has, have overturned dozens of Trump era policies, particularly ones that address climate change as well as public land protection. So, you know, what you've seen is, for example, they have gone after rules that weakened energy efficient standard energy efficiency standards which have obviously a uh, climate impact uh, fuel mileage standards and carbon standards for cars and light trucks they're they've they're looking at uh, drilling permits and uh, things like that as well as drilling leases that were granted in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska so it's uh, they're also looking at their two very significant national monuments in Utah. They're called, they're called Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monuments that were flashed by President Trump early on in his term. And uh, Interior Secretary Deb Holland has recommended expanding both of those monuments back to their original size. So, you know, what we've tried to do is look at both, you know, what are the status of the Trump administration's environmental policies, uh, roughly 36 of which have been overturned, as well as what are the new policies that Biden is advancing that are, you know, either advancing environmental 
protections or in a couple of cases, uh, scaling those back. You know, I can't help but think, and I know our listeners as well, uh, Juliet, when you hear about these rule changes that take time and effort to uh, get through, and then you have a change in administration from Republican to Democrat, is it usual to see this type of major back and forth of environmental regulations? Anything unusual from the time that Obama was in office to Trump and now Biden? Honestly, this sort of policy whiplash has been going on for some time, going back a few presidents. Um, frankly, since you had Bill Clinton leave and then you had this back and forth between George W. Bush trying to unravel Clinton's policies and his own. Then you had Barack Obama come in, do the reverse. Then you had Trump come in. So we have seen it. Part of what this speaks to and you're pointing out is that when all of or so many of these environmental policies are being enacted through the executive branch and not through legislation, they're simply not as durable. So what you're seeing is that when you have Congress act and adopt legislation that puts in place environmental protections, that which is often done with a bipartisan consensus tends to stand the test of time. Whereas you do have this dramatic change happening between presidents of two different parties. And and that's certainly something that is affecting things. One of the things that President Biden is trying to do now, since he and his aides are well aware of this history, is they're trying to lock in some of these decisions, whether it's going to be with major investments by greenlighting, you know, major offshore wind projects or making it easier to develop you know, renewable energy on, on land, things like that, or, or trying to spur the private sector, which is already moving towards a lower, car, a lower carbon future by getting buy-in, for example, from, from corporations and the way that they're planning their business going forward, that, that perhaps some of these policies will endure, even if you have someone with a different philosophy take office within a few years. You've been hearing Juliet Eilprin here on Where We Live. Again, she's Senior National Affairs Correspondent for The Washington Post. We'll be sure to tweet out some links to her reporting as well as her colleagues. Thanks so much, Juliet. I really enjoyed it. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Now, I talked to a lot of different guests on this show, but there are people who are making an impact in their communities that have nothing to do with their titles or expertise. I want to hear about the people in your town or city that have helped you, whether it was in the pandemic or long before. People who make your community great. You can email me, lucy at ctpublic.org, and tell me about them. And in the months ahead, the person you nominate may be featured on the show. Thanks for listening.